Hello, Purple People. Giles here with a quick reminder that you can get more from Something Rhymes with Purple by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts. For £1.79 a month, you can get all the regular episodes of the show ad-free. There are exclusive discount codes for our merchandise ranges, and you can get access to extended cuts of regular episodes with lots of extra word origins and even anecdotes, as well as a suite of one-off bonus episodes, including highlights of recent live show recordings and deep dives into language lagoons like the shipping forecast. So, if you want more purple and you want to support us on the show, then go to Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're using the most up-to-date version of the app and sign up today. There's no better day. Welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. And this week, we're indulging in some fine dining. I'm sitting across a table from the beautiful Susie Dent. The candle is lit. The wonderful crisp white tablecloth is gleaming. It's silver service where we are. I'm just getting carried away in a world of fantasy because, in fact, Susie Dent is in <laughs> Oxford, England. I am in London, England, and we're talking, as it were, remotely about words and language. That is what uh, Something Rhymes with Purple is all about. And fine dining is what's on the menu, but fine dining is not something that is part of my life at the moment. Is it part of yours, Susie, at the moment? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I have been to a few restaurants, I have to say, but I can't remember the last time I went to a very, very swanky restaurant. It hasn't happened for, yeah, for long before the pandemic, I have to say. Well, one of the reasons that I'm not going to swanky restaurants at the moment is I am travelling the length and breadth of the country promoting my autobiography, Odd Boy Out. And it means that I'm in a different place every day. And so I spend my life, I get to the railway station, I'm afraid... I say, I'm afraid, I'm grateful that they're there. I go into Starbucks or Cafe Nero or wherever, and I get myself yet another panini or yet another egg sandwich, and I'm just living on sandwiches. Mm. What about you? Are you travelling around the country and eating all the wrong things? Yes, so I've been doing a few literary festivals, which has been a joy. I'm starting my tour again. I've got one in Chester this autumn and then kicking off in earnest in 2022. But there's always a very strange, I'm going to use disconnect as a noun here, which I used to hate, but now I've just, I'm afraid, joined the ranks of people using disconnect. There is a strange disconnect between sitting in what is often a quite homely but shabby dressing room at the back of the theatre because, of course, all the money is spent on front of house, quite rightly. And hearing people drinking their wine in the bar in the theatre or only a couple of rooms away from you. And sometimes they'll be eating and you can hear this sort of joy in merrymaking, etc. And there you are eating your solo pizza, which you've taken away from the local whatever. It's a sort of strange life, but we do love it. And I think the moment we get on stage and, and meet the people who are equally passionate about our subject that's when it really matters isn't it you're quite right it can be quite bleak backstage yeah uh, i occasionally take photographs and tweet them of cracked basins or i open a fridge and there is milk that has been there for many months uh, and i i, I photograph so that people can realize that the full horror of it i was somewhere very lovely though farsley not far mm. from pudsey not far mm -hmm. from leeds and it was a converted mill and it was like cabaret uh, there were people sitting around tables with drinks uh, and I decided not to go backstage. I didn't go into the dressing room. I just mingled with the people and it was much more fun. And I, I was signing books beforehand and, and somebody bought me a drink, which was so lovely. Do 
I'm oh. beautiful. Just a ginger beer, because I, obviously I don't drink alcohol, particularly when I'm performing. But mm. the point is, we're going to talk about fine dining. And I have in my life, I, I, as the years go by, I am less and less interested in fine dining. But I've mm -hmm. led a very privileged life, and I've um, wined and dined at some of the most famous hotels in the world. We're going to talk, I'm sure, about the Ritz, and indeed the word Ritz. The Ritz Hotel in London, in Paris, in Madrid. Uh, I've dined at the Savoy, and I've dined at brilliant and beautiful restaurants like the Manoir Quatre Saisons. It's been a privileged life. So let, let's begin. To, let's talk. If you're listening to this podcast on the week it comes out, then this Thursday is the 175th birthday of a man called Auguste Escoffier, mm -hmm. who is one of the founders of fine feasting. We can talk about Escoffier. I think he was the chef at the London Ritz for a while. Is he the origin of the word to scoff? Eat as in eating. <laughs> no, wouldn't that be brilliant? Um, if you, you know, I've never ever made that link at all, which is brilliant. But no, because to scoff, yes, it can mean to eat voraciously. Of course, it can also mean to kind of speak derisively of somebody. But that is actually a lot earlier. It goes back to the, um, well, how, hang on, when was the Scoffier alive? Well, Scoffier, I mean, he was known in the French press as, as the roi des cuisiniers et cuisinier des rois, king of chefs and chef of kings. And he revolutionised cuisine in the late 19th, early 20th century. So that's the sort of, it's it's the turn of the 20th century. And okay, so much of the way restaurants operate around the world today is now down to him. Okay, so Scoff is a variant that came about in the 19th century, sort of 1850s, really, a variant of scaff, which is another dialect word meaning, again, to sort of eat voraciously. But I think if you scoff something, there's, there's not, I'm not sure you would scoff at a fine establishment like the Manoir that you mentioned, which incidentally was probably the last time I ever ate somewhere very posh and sleep. One and only time I've ever been there. And uh, it was absolutely lovely. The great advantage I have of being so much older than you and almost anybody I know <laughs> is um, that when I was at Oxford University, now more than 50 years ago, working as a waiter at a local restaurant was Raymond Blanc, uh -huh. who later became the founder of the Manoir Quatre Saisons. Yes. And so I met him when he was a teenager. Amazing. Uh, and so that does help me get the table that I want, simply because <laughs> we, were, we were teenagers together, which is uh, pretty fantastic. It was, I have to say, the best meal I think I have probably ever had. And it was entirely vegetarian and everybody else looked on in envy because they were all from his, um, his own garden. Oh, it was the, all the vegetables was absolutely brilliant. Anyway. Well, let's get into fine dining. Yeah. I mean, can we begin with the word to dine? Yes. What is the origin of that? Well, that's simply from the French uh, dîner, as simple as that. So we took that from the French because it was the language of prestige, of course. The, as French was seen as the language of the kind of upper classes. And so to dine was to eat the principal meal of the day. And it was usually taken at midday at that point. But actually, it goes all the way back to the 13th century. So we probably took that from the Norman conquerors when they came over. So if it was taken at midday, dinner was at midday, mm. when did lunch and luncheon come in? So lunch is a bit earlier. So luncheon for a start is, although it sounds like the posh version of lunch, we made that up. Lunch came first and lunch simply meant a chunk or a lump of wood. It's actually linked to lump, weirdly. And because we wanted to poshify it a little bit, we decided to add the E-O-N at the end. Luncheon sounded much better to us. And that came about in the 19th century, very early on. So even as early as kind of 1801. Do you, so, uh, 
Yeah. You make me glad to be alive, Susie Dent. <laughs> but no, you really do, because I, it never occurred to me that lunch wasn't an abbreviation of luncheon. No, I mean, no. lunch comes first. And in fact, the EON at the end is a kind of aggrandizement of the simple lunch to make it seem grander. Yes, we often do that. We often, I'm not sure poshify is a word, but I'm going to use it as a word. So remember not. that the Welsh rarebit, uh, most people think Welsh rarebit in British English came before the Welsh rabbit and that rabbit was a just sort of joking alteration of Welsh rarebit. Um, and for those people who um, don't know what we're talking about, a Welsh rarebit is essentially quite cheese fancy on cheese toast. on toast. <laughs> yes, with, with all sort of ale and Worcestershire sauce and all sorts of lovely things dipped in. But actually it began as Welsh rabbit and it was a mocking reference to the Welsh who they thought couldn't even afford rabbit. And so all they could afford was cheese on toast. And because rabbit, Welsh rabbit sounded a bit inferior and we wanted to um, smarten it up a bit, we decided to call it Welsh rabbit, but that came afterwards. Well, we know that breakfast is breaking the fast after night. Yes. Luncheon we've now described. Dinner is is your main meal of the day, dinner, as in the French, dîner. Very good. And yes. if we are having fine dining at your dining table, there will be a, a beautiful napkin, napiri, laid mm -hmm. on the table. Napkin, we've talked about before, I think. Napkin is a little nap. So the kin means a diminutive, and the nap goes back to the French nap for tablecloth. So, and actually, if you remember, that's where we get an apron from because it was a napron originally. It was a tablecloth that you put around yourself and then eventually a napron, a napron became a napron and then an apron. So we sit at our, with our lovely napkin and there's beautiful silverware and you get silver service. What is silver service? Mm. Silver service, that's not mentioned until the 1970s. And Goodness. it simply means that you are you are attended at the table. So quite often a plate will have a cloche on it, one of those fancy lids. That If you're at a really posh restaurant, the waiters will, if you have three waiters standing around the table, they will each have a hand in the cloche and there will be a ta-da moment where they lift the cloches all at the same time. Um, and silver service means that you are simply served from the platter that the waiter takes to the table. I was recently, not that long ago, before the pandemic, but not that long ago, I think it was at the Georges V in Paris. Oh, wow. Uh, and I went, yeah, yeah, a very grand meal where we each had a waiter. There were four of us at the table, each had a waiter. <laughs> and we also had a little side table by each of us for our handbags. Um, <laughs> worse than that, when you Yours went to included. the loo, mm. in, including mine, um, I think they wanted to see that I had a wallet and I could put it on the table so I could keep an eye on it. They certainly kept an eye on you. When you went to the loo, the waiter escorted you to the loo and escorted you back. It was so disconcerting. And we had, as a starter, because they recommended it, a stuffed tomato. My dear, it was one tomato stuffed inside another tomato, stuffed inside a third tomato, and in between there was a tomato sorbet. Uh, I mean, it was absurd. Completely absurd. It was so grand. Wait till you hear yeah. this. This okay. meal for four people, wait for it, cost more than £2,000. Our friend, Jay Rayner, who has a fantastic podcast called Out to Lunch, wrote possibly the most scathing review of any restaurant I have ever read. And he received something quite similar at the Georges V. And it was uh, also, it was charred. I mean, it was burnt to beyond recognition. And oh, no. uh, do, I mean, it's a tour de force, his, his critique of the Georges V. And uh, I think he got a rather snooty reply from the restaurant. But yeah, it's brilliantly written. And as you say, ridiculous amounts of money. 
I'm sure in the, uh, the, our lawyers would like us to point out that there are often days when we get a really good meal at the Georges Saint. Oh, I'm and sure. It, <laughs> it's phenomenal. I'm sure. It's just that this is a fabulous just, piece of writing on one particular day, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> so the waiters look after us. They also serve who only stand and wait. Um, what is the origin of the word for a waiter waiting at a table? Yes, well, that is exactly what they are doing. They are to wait in the sense of attending. And uh, that was one of the earliest meanings. So a wait was the duty of keeping guard by day. So, for example, in the warders of the Tower of London, they would have what was called a day's wait. And uh, that was their duty of keeping guard by day. And then a wait, you have lady in waiting. It's the same idea. It's attendance at court of a lord or a lady. Very good. Simple as that, yeah. So that's a waiter, and a waitress is simply a female version of that. Often mm-hmm. they're now called servers, though, aren't they? Or in America, maybe they're called more servers Well, than there's one word in the dictionary which I have never heard ever, but it often comes up on Countdown, and I find myself having to justify it being in the dictionary, even though I have never heard it. And that's a waitron, which is the gender-neutral way, apparently, in North America of referring to your waiter. But I've never heard that. I've heard oh, server I've heard a lot in the States, but never a waitron. Can I have some attention, waitron? <laughs> Yeah, uh, doesn't sound good, does it? There is a restaurant I know in London where they, at your table there's a little light and if you want service, you can press the button and it lights up. I quite like that because oh. then the, rather than having to wave your hand in the air, yeah. you know, to, and, to and get attention. And do that ridiculous bill signing thing, which I still find myself doing if the waiter or waitress or waiter on is far away across the other side of the room and you do that stupid thing that you're signing as though nobody's ever signed anything for a very long time. Yeah, we need to up our game, don't we, really, I think. The hand gestures are all very strange. Anyway, you you carry on. A soup, I imagine. Well, well, actually, what is this? I mean, obviously, one knows. Who was it who sent a note? I think it was, I'm going to get this right. I think it was F.E. Smith, Mm -hmm. who was entertaining somebody at Balliol College and the chef sent over suggestions for what should be eaten at the lunch. And he simply sent the menu back to the chef saying, gentlemen, do not eat soup at luncheon. Oh. You know, it's like you don't wear brown shoes in London. Did you know that? No. Gentleman never wears brown shoes in London, possibly on a Sunday, but certainly not during the week. It's just something a gentleman doesn't do, like a gentleman doesn't eat soup at luncheon. <laughs> so just don't, never, okay. if, if you're, look, the point I'm saying to you, Susie, if you're taken out by a bloke and mm. at lunch and he suggests the soup, you know he's no gentleman. Check his shoes. If, you, if they're brown, he's no gentleman. It's a weekday. Just step no further. You need my advice there. And I'm giving you some fatherly advice. Avoid men who offer you soup at lunch, particularly gazpachos. And, and wear brown shoes. Okay. I love gazpacho, but it's so dangerous. It gets all over your face and your... Well, oh. soup is dangerous anyway, let's face it. It is. Yeah. That and spaghetti, I think, are the two absolute no-nos if you don't want to make a total fool of yourself. I, I've got to the age when I want to actually tuck my napkin into my shirt collar, you know, and cover my front with a napkin. Or become one of those people... And, and you see rather precious men who have dainty chains around their neck with little clips on. And they clip the napkin... Um, Yes. Do you know, I couldn't possibly live with such a man. Honestly, I really couldn't. I mean, oh, my. Oh, my goodness. So now we're telling you, listeners, beware. If you are looking for a new man in your life, avoid the men who wear brown shoes, order soup at lunch, and have their napkins tied around their neck with little chains. I'm writing writing my list now. Yeah, Okay. So you've got the soup, then you've got the amuse-bouche, 
as well, if you're lucky, the things that will just tickle your mouth. Also called, more casually, amuse-gueule. Amuse-gueule, exactly. Which yes, is anything slang that from, yeah. entertains your mouth. I absolutely love that. And those are the sort of little freebies that you get in between, uh, uh, yeah. in between things, which are extremely nice. What I would like to get onto, given that you've been a waiter and I've been a waitress, is to get onto the lingo, because I find the tribal lingo of waiters and waitresses and waitrons very funny and very interesting. And I think every restaurant has their own. But should we get to that after the break? We've done yes. food a lot. For anybody who wants to know the origins of the food that you might eat at one of these incredibly posh restaurants, then do look back in our archive because we've done yes. lots and lots about the etymology of food. The waiter standing up to the right of me is now going to escort me to the loo. And then we'll be back to talk about waiter lingo. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back to Something Wise with Purple, where we are talking about fine dining, something that Nisa Jazwa have done for a very, very long time. But before the break, I mentioned that I would like to dip into the language, the secret codes that are swapped by the serving staff at a restaurant, because inevitably they will have customers that they don't like, customers that they approve of, and their own codes for when things go spectacularly wrong. And I think anybody who watches cookery programs like MasterChef, which I think is now syndicated across the world, they will know that they're always in these incredibly quite aggressive sometimes, but bustling energetic kitchens. There are always things that are kind of passed over the heads of some people directly to another person to indicate something or other. So shall I start with them, um, with the customers? Yes. Okay. So if you, and some of these are very sexist, so I apologise for, for these, but these were collected when I was writing a book on tribal vocabularies. So if you hear about a job du jour, that is a way to speak for a fit customer, a hot customer, in other words, often shortened to JDJ. So if word gets around that there's a JDJ on table five, your waiter might take what they call a drive-by to take a look. And oh, uh, yes. yeah, that, that's a job du jour. <laughs> job du jour. Uh, I love it. JDJ. I love it. Yes. And you have to remember that these may, some of these may be very specific to um, the area or even the restaurant that I was uh, doing my research in. So I'm sure there'll be lots more of these. But WKF, any idea what that might be? Um, no. Okay. Oh, I, I know. Yes, I think I can guess. Well known face. Excellent. So it's a, a familiar figure. Somebody, somebody oh, is, is that either a regular or, or it means that Tom Cruise has walked in? Yeah, probably the latter. So it's supposed to be subtler than calling them a VIP, but often the maitre d', ah. the maitre d'hôtel, will leave either WKF or TI, très important, on their list to indicate that this person should get a good table and special service. So uh, then there's the camper, and I've been a camper on occasion. A camper is somebody who just lingers, who kind of caresses a single espresso for two hours. <laughs> and um, of course, the restaurant doesn't get any revenue and the waiters don't get any more tips and they're generally frowned upon. But I think we've all been campers at some point. I um, very much like cafes that charge mm. by the hour, not by the, what you have. Ah, interesting. Uh, I, I discovered a lovely cafe at Birmingham Station the other day. 
a new street station. This is in England. And there's another one, I think, in Nottingham. Mm. And there are several called the Kitty Cafe. And it's both a cafe and a cat refuge. And you you pay six pounds to stay in there for an hour. Um, And it it contributes. If they have dogs, I'd be there. Well, it has cats, loads of cats jumping all over you. They're delightful. Uh, There's no unfortunate smell. They seem to be clean and sweet cats. And they are cats looking for homes. And it's a wonderful place to spend an hour. You're contributing your six pounds. You can also get, of course, coffee and cake, etc. And apparently there are, particularly in America now, cafes where you pay for the time you want to be there. So it's X dollars an hour. So if you mm. want to be a camper, you can stay there for two or three hours and you pay by the hour and then the coffee is free. What an excellent idea. It's so Okay, so staying with the tricky customers, mm-hmm. of course, most of these are insults. Any idea what a flea might be? A flea? Oh, God. Yes. Some, oh, dear. No, I don't like the idea of a flea. Is it spelled F-L-E-A as in the... Yes, as in the insect. Insect. Oh, yes, dear. this I is. Know, what is a flea? Well, this is one waiter's code for a bad tipper because their arms are too short to reach their pocket. <laughs> is mm. the idea. Don't quite know why a flea was chosen, but obviously never a good thing. Um, I hate. Can I interrupt you? Yeah. And I say I hate tipping. The whole thing I find exhausting because I feel I'm going to a restaurant. I want the whole caboodle. I'm getting the food. I'm getting the service. I'm ready to pay the bill. The, the notion of tipping, just, I find it awkward. I never know whether to give 10%, 12.5%, you know. And you think, are they actually going to get this money or is it simply going to line the pockets of the people who own the restaurant? It's a nightmare. I'm, I'm sure we've discussed the origin of tipping before. And I know it isn't from, it isn't an acronym of to ensure promptness. It's just tipping your hat, as it were, showing acknowledgement. Yes? Yes, that's absolutely right. It's actually related to tap. And if you tap somebody on the shoulder, you are passing on either a bit of information, such as a racing tip, or you are offering them something. And in this case, as you say, a sign of gratitude. I really like it these days when I think the standard 12.5% or something is actually added for you. And that makes it so much easier. Yeah. Okay. So a flea is somebody whose hands are too short to reach their pockets. That apparently is a bad tipper. And then there's Mr. Save. And Mr. Save or Ms. Save, I suppose, is sometimes applied in restaurants where they have a really long waiting list. So Mr. Save is the name given to an entirely made up customer for whom a table is always held in reserve. And of course, this will be given to the next WKF that shows up. Um, Uh, So yeah, Mr. Save is a euphemistic way of saying... There's always a table for the for the celebrity oh, that keep comes. a table for Mister Save. I like it. Any yes. more of these secret turns of phrase that are used by waiting staff? Oh yeah. So some of the orders, for example, I quite like. I mean, I think any waiter I, I remember this one will recognise all day. So that's the total of identical dishes that's being prepared. So, for example, within the kitchen, someone might shout, I need two more steaks. That's six all day. So that's six all in, but they'll say that's six all day, six steaks. So that's just very simple shorthand that makes things very quickly. There's hot behind, which is another thing that I remember. Hot behind is what you call when you're walking behind others so they don't step back into a tray of hot food. Not what Uh, you might think. (laughs) It's quite a relief, actually, yes. (laughs) Yes. And then there's a lovely one, which is when you run out of something in the kitchen, the staff will say it's 86. And 86 is actually used for other situations. So you might find in a business, if someone's been 86, they've been sacked. It's a a bit of a euphemism. Customers can also be 86 if they're thrown out, by the way, for some reason. But the phrase is definitely North American. And one theory 
thinks it is from the Prohibition era when the maximum capacity in a restaurant was 85 and so the 86th customer would be turned away. So the idea is that no more something is 86th. Gosh, there's so more. You know when ketchup runs out on your table and so behind the scenes, another ketchup bottle will be sort of, the contents of it will be added to the original. So what you're doing is you're marrying two or more bottles of condiments. It's called marrying. It's actually illegal, this practice. And some people have even done it with wine in restaurants. So it's essentially topping up from another bottle, which sounds a bit grim. And speaking of bottles, a soldier in some bars and restaurants, is a beer bottle. So a dead soldier is an empty beer bottle and a wounded soldier is one that's been partially drunk and then left. So that's a bit grim, isn't it? Uh, And it reminds me of 17th century slang, naval slang, where someone down among the dead men had passed out drunk on the floor of the pub. So... (gasps) down with the dead soldiers. That's that's all a bit grim. But uh, lots and lots of codes, as you might expect, or, you know, for customers, particularly the very difficult ones. Do you find going to a restaurant where there is very fine dining somewhat intimidating still, Susie? Obviously, I'm sure we both did when we were young, but as we've Mm. got older, do you still find it a bit intimidating? Well, yes, I don't really... I pretty much totally vegetarian these days. So I used to be pescatarian and I used to eat fish. And the one thing that I've never, ever been able to master is those seafood utensils that you would get. So I remember going on a date to one of the Conran restaurants that was right by Tower Bridge, this absolutely beautiful restaurant. And Terence Conran, his restaurants used to, it was called Le Pont de Tour, and it used mm. to specialise in its seafood. And I didn't have much choice in what was going to come because I think this was generally ordered as a kind of meal for two. And I did not have a clue where to start with all these clamps and pokery things. So I'm afraid I just said, I don't know what to do. I think honesty is always the best policy. <sighs> In those days. I do How about remember, you? Well, well, when I was a teenager, I genuinely once drank the finger bowl uh, because <laughs> it, it was there. It was a little silver <laughs> bowl. It, it, it looked like a very thin soup. Uh, there was a lemon floating in it and there was a spoon and I began spooning away, oh. drinking the finger bowl. You mentioned the Ritz, which, um, as, you, as you said at the top, has, has really found its way into English. Although for a while, putting on the Ritz actually meant sort of being really pretentious and it wasn't a good thing. Whereas now we kind of associate it with luxury and opulence and elegance, etc. But yes, all goes back to César Ritz, who opened the Ritz Hotel in Paris in, was it 1898? And he always wanted it to be the last word in luxury and he definitely succeeded. And the one in London followed not long after. Another day, we must do a whole thing on hotels, because I I once lived in a hotel and I discovered the secret floor. Many a hotel has a secret floor that nobody knows about where the most extraordinary things happen. Oh, we must talk about hotels because one of my main ambitions right up until I was about 15 was to be a hotel manager. Well, do you know, we we had very similar fantasies. There's a wonderful novel called The Confessions of Felix Kroll Mm -hmm. by Thomas Mann. Yes. And he, in that, becomes a a waiter living a life in a hotel. I I would have been your head waiter in your hotel that you managed. That's what you wanted to do. We haven't even talked about sommelier, actually. Let's do something on wine, because I don't think we've actually really delved into wine. I can have a tipple while we record. And uh, the language of the sommelier is also quite funny. 
We will drink deep with the sommelier another week. But now we must discover if people have been in touch with us because purple people from around the world, tell us your tales of fine dining. Get in touch. It's purple at somethingelse.com. Who's been in touch this week, Susie? We have something from Megan. She's called, actually, very suitably for our sommelier episode when it comes, Megan Boisson. Not Boisson, but Boisson. I'm not sure if I pronounced that properly, Megan, but it's a lovely surname. And she says she looks forward to the show every Tuesday. Thank you so much for that. And listening to the last episode, she was wondering about the word slang and where it comes from. Does the lang part of it relate to the word language? And does it have anything to do with the phrase slanging match? Well, I'm going to disappoint you, Megan, because this is one of the great etymological mysteries. Given that it's such an important word, particularly for lexicographers, you would think that we would have nailed it by now. But we haven't, unfortunately. We don't know where the word slang comes from. And maybe that's quite fitting because slang is always designed to kind of elude us and to be a code that none of us can crack. Uh, But I can tell you that it does have something to do with a slanging match because slang was considered, and still is by many people, to be vulgar, uncouth, non-standard, etc. And so to have a slanging match is to throw that kind of language at other people to assume that it's kind of abusive and a little bit vulgar. So those are linked. But quite where slang itself comes from, we do not know, but we don't think it is linked to language. Um, All I can say is that the the work will still go on. Well, if you know the answer, do get in touch. (laughs) It's purple at somethingelse.com and no G in something. Hi, writes Graham from Southampton. In Southampton, we call the alleyway behind back-to-back properties the cut or cutway. But I know it's called a ginnel or snicket in other parts of the country. I'm assuming an alleyway is derived from the French to go, aller. But where do the other words come from? And do you know any other colloquial names? Yours curiously, Graham. Oh, my goodness. This is one of the favourite subjects of dialectologists because dialect collects around certain themes. And one of those themes is the passage between buildings. And there are just so many of them. So, yes, the alleyway does come from the French alley, meaning to go. You have a twitchel, you have a genel, you have an enog, you have a jigger, you have a pend, you have a tenfoot, a gully, a close, a twitten, a loke, depending on where you are in Britain. I'll tell you where a few of them come from because I probably won't have time to do all of them. But Ginnel is probably a variant of Channel with the idea of a small passageway. A snicket goes back to a verb to snick, which is to sort of sidle, if you like. So again, the idea is that you are sort of going down somewhere kind of narrow, a, a narrow one. Then you have twitchel or twitchen as well. And we think that goes back to an old English word meaning a fork in a road or a forked way. And oh my goodness, so on and so forth. Maybe we should do an entire thing actually, Giles, on the themes around which these sort of dialect words collect because there are many and alleyway is a very famous one. Good, definitely. Let's do that. Meanwhile, take us down your alley and introduce us to three interesting words. Okay, so I'm going to start off with a fairly pessimistic one. We're having a fairly tough time of it, aren't we, all of us, just in in so many different ways. And uh, I just came across this word in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it's very, very old. don't know if there's some solace to be had in the fact that we've had this for a long time, but the word is pessendate. And to pessendate is to cast down or ruin. So you might feel that the world is a bit pessendated at the moment. I just like the sort of vitriol behind it, to pessendate. So that's the first one. If you would like a smile, on the other hand, you might like a Cornish dialect word for a silly fellow. And that's a Tim Doodle. Uh. 
Oh, I love that. It doesn't have to be called Tim. In fact, there are lots of variants on, on this. You'll find Samuel Johnson talking about a flap doodle. A flap doodle, we use it as a noun for stuff and nonsense, but a flap doodle or doodler was somebody who spouted it. But a Tim doodle, yes, I like that. A silly fellow. And this one I think is quite useful as well. It's from Somerset and it describes the last person to finish when you've sat down for a meal. And they are a linard. And probably goes back to a Latin word meaning to finish, to cease, but it is used in dialect for the very last person. You know when you're waiting, you're waiting for the linard to finally put their knife and fork down. That's a very useful word. Yes. You're you're the linard. Oh, always the linard. Oh, I, I, no, no, I'm going to use that one. Linard. And I love, I love Tim Doodle. It's completely marvelous. Tim Doodle is, is very fun. Now, you have a special poem for us today, don't you? Well, this week I'm going to share a poem that was sent in to us by Anna McLennan. And I think it's a rather wonderful poem. It's written by Rose Milligan. See if you enjoy it too. Dust, if you must, but wouldn't it be better to paint a picture or write a letter? Bake a cake or plant a seed, ponder the difference between want and need. Dust, if you must... But there's not much time, with rivers to swim and mountains to climb, music to hear and books to read, friends to cherish and a life to lead. Dust if you must, but the world's out there, with the sun in your eyes, the wind in your hair, a flutter of snow, a shower of rain, this day will not come round again. Dust if you must, but bear in mind, old age will come, and it's not kind. And when you go, and go you must, you yourself will become more dust. That's brilliant. Love that. It is. It is brilliant. And there are two schools of thinking. There was the great Quentin Crisp, who I said, I think, used to say that he left, he didn't do any dusting. And after three years, he said the dust never gets any worse. That's one ah. school of thinking. And there's another school of thinking that says, actually, who wants dust everywhere? And let's tidy up. And I'm afraid, I think I'm more with the latter than the former. Mm. Now, I so, just like the overall message of, you know, yeah. stopping and staring and taking time to appreciate. And I think mindfulness, that's about, isn't it? And um, yeah, anyway, beautifully written, whatever your point of view. And I thank you so much for sending it in. And thanks indeed for all your emails, for getting in touch, purple at somethingelse.com. We do appreciate it and we read them all. Something Rise With Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and never pessimated, is he? No, he's our very own Tim Doodle. It's Gully! Gully. Get on with the dusting, Gully. <laughs>